Welcome back to the second mini-episode of Radio vs. the Martians. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Dorn. Get ready for a nerdgasm. <laughs> yeah, uh, we are going to answer some of the feedback that we got from our most recent pro wrestling episode. And we're going to announce our next panel to be recorded in May. But first, what is new in the nerd world? Well, because there is literally no escape. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. From the whirlpool that is George Lucas. Right. There is some new news from the world of Lucas slash Disney these days. Right. And it's a big one. It's a shocker. LucasArts, this is a company that makes all of the Lucas-themed video games. We're talking like all their Star Wars games plus Maniac Mansion is being boxed up and shipped away by Lucas and Disney. Yeah, total fire sale. I mean, it's kind of sad. The heyday of LucasArts was quite a long time ago. It's probably more than a decade since LucasArts has been the developer of any one of the uh, licensed Star Wars games, because most of them, the newest ones like the Knights of the Old Republic, that's all Bioware, you know, that's all stuff that's done through EA now. So they've been farming out the IP for Star Wars video games for a while, and it's just taken, apparently being a fire sale to a huge media company, a huger media company, to just dismantle it altogether. That's the part that I think is going to be really interesting to watch, because this may not be the first time we see parts of Lucasfilm or projects of Lucasfilm just get boxed up and canceled. Oh, of course not. Of course not. I expect this to be par for the course. There's uh, two games, I forget their titles right now, but they've actually been canceled midstream in the course of this. One of them is Star Wars 1313, and that one may or may not be canceled, we're not sure, but yeah, one of them, them on the chopping block, and everyone's just worried now that it's going to go to Disney, and Disney's going to find a way to make it a little less interesting than they have been over the past couple years. Yeah, it's weird. On the video game front, the Lucas Company hasn't actually put out a lot of stuff that has been commercially successful in a while. I know Knights of the Old Republic was probably their last big success. They put out Connect Star Wars to great fanfare. Oh, God. <laughs> but apparently, it, like with a lot of motion video games that have come out, that just the technology really doesn't work that well. well. I, I can play devil's advocate for Connect Star Wars, and this also ties into the, I didn't see it, but the god-awful computer-animated Seth Green Star Wars parody movie, that they those are really are, in the classic words of George Lucas himself, for kids. They are not intended for the power audience of 30, 40-somethings who love and will buy everything Star Wars. They're for nine-year-olds. So I can at least give them that. This is not the last time we're going to talk about Star Wars. Oh, no. no. We are always going to get pulled back. There is a heavy, heavy gravity well that uh, emits <laughs> from the George Lucas Empire. And we are eventually going to address that in a full panel episode, so stay tuned. Right, we will need even more wind-up for this than for Star Trek, if you can believe it. Staying on the video game front, there has been another release. This is one that people are actually looking forward to right. for a change. <laughs> Bioshock Infinite, which is the third game in the series that comes out from 2K. This is a series that has always been incredibly ambitious. Rather than just being a game with beautiful graphics, which there are a lot of games with beautiful graphics. Mm -hmm. This has been a game series that has probably been, to me, the best rebuttal to the late and dearly departed Roger Ebert's claim that video games couldn't be art. Oh, sure, sure. I always used Bioshock as my one-word response to that, that Bioshock was this gorgeous game that came out in 2007, I think? Yeah, 2007. Yeah. It was just a complete critical success. Sold really well. It's just a gorgeous game all around, but also it's a game that asks a lot of heavier questions that you're used to seeing from a, a medium that started out with people basically jumping on turtles. 
Right, right. I honestly wish we had an hour and a half to talk about Bioshock series, and that may be a potential topic there, but Bioshock Infinite, which is another spiritual successor, doesn't take place anywhere in the same narrative as the original Bioshock, but takes place instead in a contrafactual floating city in the early 20th century, where there is a pseudo-Christian, no, he's definitely a Christian, prophet who runs this city that is basically the uh, Dixieland South's wet dream. It's a weird, amazingly jarring thing, because it marries religion and politics in a way that I haven't seen in a game, where you have this very kind of unnerving moment very early on in the game, where you see somebody praying to Thomas Jefferson. Oh, yes. And that's not something I expected, where it's this world that is built around sort of xenophobic, aggressive, very encapsulated vision of America and jingoism, and your character is sort of thrust into this world. And unlike the original Bioshock games, which took place in an underwater city, it was also built around an ideological bent, in that case, objectivism. This one is in the middle of a city that hasn't fallen apart yet, so you actually get to see this place during its heyday. You get to see the world that it's taking place in, the people who exist in this world going about their daily lives. You're not just sifting through the wreckage of this once beautiful place. You're seeing it while it's beautiful, but also seeing how scary it can be even before it falls apart. Sure, and I think the best part for me about this is not just that there's an ambitious story-driven game, because there's lots of great games that are out there that are ambitious and story-driven, but it is a first-person shooter, and in a genre of video games where the highest possible achievement is something like Call of Duty, which is diametrically opposed to the type of game that you'd see here. The, the mechanism may be the same, but the fact they put story, narrative, characterization, and setting, and mes- moral over or even the gameplay itself, is astounding. That's the hard part with this series, because Bioshock 2, which did take place in the same narrative, it was a direct sequel to the original Bioshock, it had a higher hurdle to climb than most games do, which is that it had to live up to the reputation of its predecessor. Right. Where Bioshock 2 is a really good game. It's not as good as the original Bioshock. True. And it's almost unfair to compare any game to Bioshock, but Bioshock 2 is still, again, better than most games. And I'd say the same is actually true of Bioshock Infinite, but I'd say Bioshock Infinite, because it's free to pull itself back and create its own new world rather than finding new ways to dig into the world that was created in the first game. That's a lot of fun to immerse yourself in this world, because if there's anything that these games are really good at, it's throwing yourself into a world that has a culture and a personality, and the level of detail is just amazing. That you can just wander around before you start shooting at people and really seeing these little instances of just characters going about their daily lives and getting an impression of what it would be like to live in this floating city of Columbia. I would say that the two biggest strengths for the narrative in Bioshock Infinite would be one, brevity, and two, nuance. And somehow it's able to balance both of those things, which is fantastically hard to do in any medium, let alone a video game. And to find nuance in a game that has an animatronic George Washington firing a chain gun at you? (laughs) Yes! Is impressive. Yes. So it's it's a game that's remarkably subtle, given how unsubtle many of its elements are. Right, right. So I'd say definitely check it out. Recommend. Recommend, for sure. But we're definitely going to talk about Bioshock at a future time. I know that this is something we're going to have to address again. There's just so much there to talk about. We're going to have to focus an entire panel episode on it in the future. Yep. Let's look at what some of our audience talked about our previous show. Sure. We actually got a message from Paul Rue, one of our panelists who wanted to make a correction. He says, I do want to have one factual correction. Early on, I claim that George Hackenschmidt used to pay sparring partners to injure future opponents. This is incorrect. It was Frank Gotch who did that. 
George Hackenschmidt was one of the opponents he did it to. Ah. Yeah, and listener Charles Ellis says, the suggestion of how Hulk Hogan should handle being old is a pretty cool idea. And David Arquette, seriously? I think that was one of your more brilliant moments, Mike, to be sure. No, I think your comment about Hulk Hogan being old and how they should turn his character into a more, how would you say, approachable or maybe sympathetic? Well, sympathetic, but also, I'd say also making him more human. Not having him be a Superman in his 60s. That It takes you out of the reality of the show when I'm supposed to believe that this man who clearly can't move very quickly is beating the shit out of people who are much younger, much faster than him. It's like watching a movie where a guy in a full body cast beats the crap out of Jackie Chan. Right. It just isn't believable. And when you have a character who just can't move very well, and again, Hulk Hogan's taken a lot of injuries over the years. I'm not blaming him for that. And he's also in his 60s now. But it's just not realistic to be able to do that. But to instead embrace that, you could actually have good stories to tell with Hulk Hogan, but I don't think his ego would ever allow it. Yeah, I don't think this trend is somehow is even native to pro wrestling, because if you saw the Expendables 2, which, you know, for some of us, it's a pretty awesome sell to have all the old American action movie stars. If you saw Chuck Norris try to just sort of as he's as stiff as a robot trying to walk and talk his way through that movie, you think, Jesus, this guy should have hung it up a long time ago. Exactly. It takes you out of the reality of the thing that you're watching and suddenly realize irrevocably that you're watching a movie. Right. You're watching all of his opponents humor him, and it becomes frustrating to watch. And that's why David Arquette winning the WCW world title is insulting. It's insulting to all of the people who were in that company, and so many of whom have worked for over a decade trying to get to the point where they can win a lesser title, let alone hold it for a long time. But the fact that you would essentially take the most valuable thing your company has and throw it away on essentially cross-promotion with a movie... That really reminds me of, I was reading a story from a videographer who was doing the season two DVD extras for Star Trek Enterprise, and he's hearing from, I think, Brandon Braga, who somewhere in the middle of the show, he was sitting in on a meeting with Paramount executives. They were asking him, you know, is there like a, a restaurant on the show? And the, him and some of the other producers says, well, they have a mess hall, and that sort of acts like, for all intents and purposes, a restaurant. And then this executive, in all seriousness, he says, you know what would be great? If we could have some hot young young band come play in the mess hall and the uh, the crew could like it and we could put title cards before the show wouldn't that be great it's that sort of mentality it's the mentality where if you can promo something if you can just surgically just splice in a promo for something then people who are paying lots of money will be fine with it but the narrative just gets sullied in the reality of wcw or pro wrestling in general this is a battle between the superhumans for a trophy and you're not even having the trophy be won by an actor who you can have believably win a fight, even in the movies he stars in. Right. This isn't like Jean-Claude Van Damme or Arnold Schwarzenegger or Jackie Chan winning the title. If Jackie Chan won the title, at least you can go, yeah, I could see Jackie Chan kicking this guy's ass. But when it's David Arquette... (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's also two different... I mean, yeah, their pieces of pro wrestling are silly, and some of them are try to be very serious, some of them try to be very silly, but it has its own brand of silliness. It's kind of like, I don't know, trying to put Rob Schneider in a Woody Allen movie. Like, they just two would not gel, and trying to force them to be in the same flavor of the same genre is just... It stands out. Cross-promotion, by the way, is not a new thing with professional wrestling. 
Sometimes it gets really silly. The worst example being when I believe Sting in WCW had been captured by the Four Horsemen and RoboCop came to the rescue and actually bent the parts of a cage that they had put him in. I mean, it's just fucking ridiculous. <laughs> RoboCop. By the way, RoboCop still moves quicker than Hulk Hogan. <laughs> oh. Oh, God. Uh, uh, any YouTube viewers out there, just try to find the, uh, I believe it was the Oscars or the Emmys video that has Pee Wee Herman and RoboCop in the same bit. You'll love it. <laughs> For another another one of our viewers, Royal Burnell says, needs more vanilla midgets. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with that one, Casey. No, I'm not. No, it's, but it sounds silly on its face. It's actually a remark that Kevin Nash made about other people in WCW. He was an influential wrestler, like seven feet tall, big guy, who didn't move in the ring and has a reputation for pulling his ACL when he stubs his toe. He got hurt a lot, and he had these obscene contracts with WCW where if anyone came into the company and they got paid more than him, his contract would immediately jump itself over them so that he could remain the highest paid guy in the company. Wow. So this guy's a dick, and he was notorious for keeping talent back. And Vanilla Midget was a phrase that he used to describe people who were much quicker and smaller in the ring who were not six foot five, six foot eight, but very talented people. And he used that phrase specifically to talk about Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit, who are both infinitely better wrestlers than he was. So hmm. Hmm. So Vanilla Midget was the phrase. I believe CM Punk actually threw that phrase in his face during a mock shoot promo that they did later on. Nice. So Timothy Sutton gives his own best and worst moments in wrestling. The best is, he says, probably seeing ECW live when I was 16 years old. Most amazing show I ever got to see live, having Raven and Terry Funk land in our lap and brawling around us in the crowd. That sounds an awful lot like Rich's best moment, where he was able to have the action itself land right in front of you and have it be part of the audience interaction, be part of the action. And the worst, he says, fast forward roughly 10 years, seeing Sandman at a local promotion called 2CW. He was so wasted in the ring, calling moves loud enough for everyone to hear in the arena. It was a especially special moment when he was super loud saying, take me over easy. <laughs> this was just the worst because it was seeing what the damage had done to yet another wrestler. Just like the time Jake the Snake pulled out his personal snake at a show as well. <laughs> just, just so ruined by the business. Wait, wait, Jake the snake pulled out his cock at a show is that what i'm hearing that's what it sounds like oh okay <laughs> let's just say jake the snake fell very very far <laughs> that hitting bottom for jake the snake was lower than most people thankfully he seems to be pulling himself out of that remarkably deep pit that he was <laughs> in for a very long time very talented guy very self-destructive hopefully he can pull himself out of that and finally, our good friend, Rabbi Jairam, uh, we want to apologize for butchering the pronunciation of your name last time, <laughs> had this to say. Thinking back, I remember first getting into wrestling because I saw Sergeant Slaughter on G.I. Joe. And then my mother told me that Sergeant Slaughter was a character in WWF. As a kid at around 11, I followed the Iraq War very closely on the news, so I was very upset when Sergeant Slaughter became an Iraqi sympathizer and joined General Eggnog, <laughs> what my friends and I used to call him because we couldn't pronounce his name, it was General Adnan. I remember reading that Sergeant Slaughter had to go around with heavy security and a bulletproof vest because he got so many death threats. That's true. Mm -hmm. And he actually lost the contract that he had with Hasbro to appear on G.I. Joe because of the angle where he was an Iraqi sympathizer. Rabbi goes on to say, I'm with Mike. I like the wrestlers who were more agile, such as the Rockers, the Orient Express, the Great Muda, and Justin Thunderliger. Even the Macho King, as mentioned in the podcast, was agile. 
though he was bigger than the others in that class. I remember seeing the Macho Man run across the ring, jump straight to the top turnbuckle, jump and nail his opponent outside the ring, then jump back in all within a few seconds. He was fast. Probably it was a Coke. <laughs> oh, rest in peace, Macho Man Randy Savage. If you remember, he helped prevent the apocalypse from coming by by dying. So we appreciate your sacrifice, Macho Man. That probably needs a little bit of explanation. Sure. For those who don't know, a couple of years ago, a well-funded fundamentalist kook named Harold Camping put up billboards, and I'm not exaggerating, around the world declaring that in May 2011, Jesus was coming back to herald the end of the world. Uh, spoiler alert, didn't happen. <laughs> However, the day before it didn't happen was the day that Macho Man Randy Savage died in a car accident. So this internet meme was created, whereas by his death, Randy Savage averted Armageddon with the big elbow. <laughs> and probably some cocaine. <laughs> so on that note, let's announce the next panel that we're going to be doing in May. Sure. Our next episode is going to be about the ubiquitous and inescapable cultural juggernaut. Yes, we're talking about zombies. Yeah, and what I love so much about this topic is zombies are an IP that's owned by no one, and zombies are so flexible, they can fit into any genre and any medium, and there is nary an explanation needed to actually insert them into any existing story. In fact, it's actually a tradition in zombie stories to not give the explanation for why there are zombies in the first place. It doesn't matter why, they're just there. And because of that, you can throw them into a downloadable content package from a Call of Duty game. You can throw them into a DLC package for Red Dead Redemption, which was a spaghetti western game. <laughs> or a tower defense game, Plants vs. Zombies. The the uh, permutations are just about endless. And I think maybe that's where you could see some of the overuse of zombies is where you might see a little bit of the uh, resistance creeping up where people think, oh, well, it's totally and completely played out. We're going to have that discussion. And joining Casey and myself will be our good friend Libby Grant the author of Baptism for the Dead, and her fiancé, Paul Harnden. This is going to be a lot of fun because Paul loves zombies to death. Libby can't stand them. <laughs> and this is somewhat of an issue of contention between the two of them. So mark my words, you will see a relationship die on Radio vs. The Martians. <laughs> oh, you might see that, or perhaps we'll all have a great zombie survival plan by the end of it. That's our show. We'll be back in a month with our zombie panel. Until then, see you next time. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Ocean, west of London, England, south of Mars, and north of hell.